So we've been looking at the life of uh, Jacob uh, this summer. We're going to continue that today, and uh, we're up to uh, this story in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 29, verses 1 to 30, and uh, uh, you're probably not paying much attention uh, to what's going on, but I, I want to tell you before we read this text that this is one of the craziest stories in the Bible, and so crazy, so, so crazy. Uh, and honestly, there are things that happen in this passage that uh, I can't explain. And, and they're not miracles. And so, um, <laughs> uh, except that uh, it looks like human beings acting like human beings. So uh, you'll, you'll get my drift. But before, before I read this text, uh, let me pray and uh, we'll dive in this morning. Lord, we uh, rejoice today that uh, you don't leave us alone, uh, that you pursue us. Uh, Jesus, as you said, that the Father is the true seeker, uh, that he seeks worshipers. And uh, so I pray today that uh, you would do that work uh, in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I know we're tempted sometimes to despair, especially of those we love, that uh, Uh, They seem to be wandering, seem to be stuck, and Lord, you are in the business of getting sinners unstuck by redeeming them. So I pray that you would give us courage as we read this text today, that you would encourage our hearts, that you'd give us the gift of repentance and the gift of trust. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, Genesis 29 Uh, Verses 1 through 30, uh, the text is in the bulletin, also up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, This is God's word, and uh, we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Uh, Then Jacob went on his journey, uh, which is kind of a a poor uh, translation. Uh, You know, he's just had the vision there at Bethel where God comes and makes those promises to him to be with him and to provide for him and to bless him. Uh, He sees the ladder to heaven. Uh, The Hebrew actually says there that he lifted up his feet. In other words, he was happy. He was excited as he went on his way. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yes, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. 
Uh, he's probably showing off a little bit. Let me show the shepherdess. I can roll this rock away. Sound like some people you know, some men you know? Okay. Um, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Now, many commentators think that uh, Laban is remembering that the last time someone from the extended family came uh, to the family, that was Abraham sending his servant uh, to acquire a wife for Isaac. And he brought, well, I don't know, 10, 12 camels loaded with money. So no wonder Laban ran out. And there are other commentators who think that Laban's um, embrace of Jacob <laughs> was not like, oh, I love you, was you got any money on you? Let me see if I can feel around here to see, see if you got any cash. Um, these people. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, um, I don't have any explanation for that. It uh, must have been quite a wedding reception, right? I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Um, yeah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Ah, the deceiver is deceived. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. There's that birth order thing again. Complete the week for this one and we'll give you the other. Also in return for serving me another seven years, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. What a story. I don't know if you drive around Richmond very much, uh, but one of the things that I've noticed uh, in an effort to make traffic more efficient, uh, I've noticed that traffic engineers are doing away with intersections and turning them into roundabouts. 
roundabouts. Now, uh, supposedly roundabouts are more efficient ways to move cars, right? If you know how roundabouts work. Uh, if you're ignorant about how uh, roundabout works, it only provides you an opportunity for frustration and an argument in the car about, wait, how do I do this? I want to go over here. Is it my right away? Is it their right away? And so I've been in a number of roundabouts that I know very well uh, because I've, I've gone around them more than once. So I don't know if that was efficient or whatever, but I get stuck in them. I get stuck in them. And it's hard to find a way out. Uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't know how they work. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone can tell me how they work. The people in my car usually do, but um, it is, it, it's, quite, it's quite a scene. Well, this story is a roundabout. These people are stuck, right? Uh, and, and you may be reading this story and you may be thinking, this is so awesome, this is such a great story, because Jacob finally is getting his comeuppance. He is reaping what he has sown. And there's certainly truth in that. No doubt about that. Um, the problem with our thinking about reaping and sowing, there's no doubt uh, that we reap what we sow. The problem with that is that we often tend to think about that terminology, and Scott, you can go ahead and put my notes up, is that, that we delight in our enemies or sometimes our friends reaping what they've sown. When we see that someone we have a difficulty with or someone that we're jealous of gets something negative happen to them. We like that. Now, I, 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 love, I love it when you reap what you sow. It's great. There's a God, a God of justice. It's so awesome. Look at that. That guy is getting what uh, he sowed. I'm not as high on this principle when it lands in my lap because I have mitigating circumstances, right? Uh, I have, let me give you all the reasons why I should be let off the hook from reaping what I've sown, right? So when we, when we are, if, if we live in a world where you only reap what you sow, and that that reaping of what we sow is simply punitive and not redemptive, not restorative, not somehow or other that, that, that uh, as, as Jacob receives deceit, as he is deceived, as 
he gets stuck as he, you know, how, how ironic the story is. You know, there are things going on in the dark where you can't see apparently and, and you're deceived, just like Isaac could not see. And so he gave the wrong blessing to the, or the right blessing to the wrong boy, right? Or, or you have the situation where the, the, the younger is preceding the older and vice versa. So there's so much irony in the story but the fact is, if, if, if we simply satisfy ourselves with the fact that you reap what you sow and there's no redemptive discipline where God uses, where God redeems, where his people reap what they sow, then we live in a very difficult place, don't we? We live in a place where uh, it, it becomes, we get stuck in this kind of circle of sinning, reaping consequences, sinning, reaping consequences, without any sense at all that there's a God who loves us, that there's a God who's made these promises to Jacob. Isn't it interesting, right? As Jacob enters into this contract and gets deceived and these things happen to him, he, there, there's, the, he, there's no sense that he is reminding himself of the fact, wait, God came to me at Bethel and promised to be with me and promised to provide for me and, and promised to see me through so I can, I can, I can rest in that. So what, what happens here is, and as we'll see unfold over these following chapters is this cycle of deceit, more deceit, of soured relationships, more soured relationships, brokenness, brokenness. I mean, just imagine what those seven years, not the first seven years, but just imagine what the second seven years are like in that family, right? You cheated me, now I'm working again, you know. And I don't really know what to make of Leah in this. In some ways, she seems to be just, a, Rachel and Leah just seem to be commodities. But I, I wonder, didn't Leah know what her dad was doing? Was she just a pawn in this? Maybe. But it's such a mess, okay? So I, I hope, I hope we, 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 we all... We all see that, and it causes us some anxiety and some, some, uh, some fear, really, that do we want to live in a world where that's just the way that things are? Do we want to live in a world where there's this calculus going on all the time of reaping and sowing, of, of deceit, where there is no redemption, where there is no one who enters into this world uh, to uh, restore relationships, to restore hope, and to tell us that God has a purpose even in the midst of redeeming our sin for his glory and ultimately for our good, right? So the thing that is so uh, uh, terrifying about this is, is that human beings will, uh, if we believe that there is no God, if we believe that there is no promise, that there is no provision, if we believe that somehow or other God is absent from this, and it is interesting, right? There, God is not absent from the story, but none of the characters seem to be praying. None of the characters seem to be turning to him. None of the characters seem to be bringing to bear the covenantal promise and goodness of God to bear in any of their dealings with each other. And so we're left with these 
these counterplots and plots of trying to outdo, trying to deceive, trying to get our share of what little things there are out there in this world so that we are protected, we're taken care of, and our interests are preeminent in our hearts and minds, and so we see to it that they're taken care of. So do you see, this is just, it's just a mess, just a giant mess. And these are our people, you know? These are our family. These are, our, these are the, the people that we spiritually uh, descend from. Next slide. Uh, and so one of the things that you have to ask the question about this is, how does the fact that Jesus Christ entered into this world, a world full of duplicity, a world full of deceit, a world full of people grasping after things, and, and he enters into the world precisely as someone who doesn't grasp after things. He enters into the world precisely as someone who releases his rights and who tells the truth and who enters into the world in such a way that he can take people like us, people like Jacob and like Laban, people who are quick to deceive and to protect themselves and to, to bear grudges and to, to try to get comeuppances against one another. He enters into that world and he brings about a whole different economy, a whole different way of living life because in the midst of this, what we have is the very promise of God that he will be with us, that he will be for us. And not only that, but that he is lavish in his grace and his blessing. So if I believe that there's a God who loves me, if I believe that there's a God who is for me, if I believe that there's a God who has made these promises and he cannot deceive, he does not lie, then how does that change my own calculus about the way I live, the way I function, the way I treat other people, right? And so I think it's an important thing for us to, to ask the question, right? No one in this text is asking the question, ah, no one in this story so far has been asking the question, you know what? I don't like to be deceived. And so I'm not going to deceive. I don't like to be cheated. So I'm not going to cheat. I don't like it when people gloat over my failures and, and my difficulties, so I am not going to gloat over others. Wow, where's the fun in that, right? <laughs> and so what, we, what happens to us is because... It seems as if God is absent. It seems as if he's not at work here because we forget, we, we don't believe the truth that he is for us, that he is with us, that he, is, he, that he will work all these things out for our good and for his glory because we don't believe that. We are thrown back upon our own resources and what are often are our own resources are deceit, cheating, shading the truth, trying to make sure that we and our own are protected, right? So if Jesus has blessed me and bled for me, then I am free to have the posture that the way I want to be treated is the way that I am going to treat you. Because here's the problem that many of us face, and, and it boils down uh, to this, that because 
we tend not to believe there's a God in whom we can trust and in whom we can entrust our situations and even in whose hands we can entrust our enemies because we tend not to believe that. We tend to feel like we have to be the ultimate arbiters of justice and we have to make sure that we see to it that, that, that we're protected and that our interests are looked after. A few years ago, uh, I, uh, I purchased this book uh, written by a guy who lives here in Richmond, a, uh, a Richmonder, about the feud uh, beginning in the 1870s up well into the uh, 20th century between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Now, you know, we, we read, you hear that and you think, oh, that sounds funny. You know, that's these hillbillies out there not knowing any better or whatever. Well, you can read the Hatfields and the McCoys and you can think, you know, that, you know, they, there was so much retribution and somebody shorted somebody else and there are knife fights on election day and uh, ambushes and people, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that sort of thing. And we read that and we think, well, such unsophisticated country bumpkins. And they were. The fact is, they would have. Uh, what the authors uh, thought about that is, is that these guys, if they had better weapons and they weren't so drunk when they were uh, going after one another in their retribution, they would have killed a lot more people. So we think that's, you know, kind of quaint and that sort of thing. And yet, do you and I not live in a world, and are we not tempted to take pleasure? in the retribution that our enemies or those of whom we are jealous receive difficulties, right? When in fact, what the gospel does for us is it moves us into a place where if there's a God in whose hands I can entrust my enemies, if there's a God in whose hands I can entrust my own destiny and my own life, I can rest and be free in the midst of that to bring to bear in difficulties and challenging situations and in negotiations like this, the, the reality that God is for me and that he will protect me and that he will see me through and that even he might use me to bless my enemies. Uh, when I was growing up, one of the uh, things that I did to make money was I raised livestock and uh, would sell uh, a couple of cows a year that, that I raised. But I also raised beagles. I love beagles. Uh, don't have one right now uh, because I didn't raise lap beagles. The kind, you know, those dogs that just sit around the house and sit in your lap and just pets. These dogs had a purpose in life, therefore they were happier than pets. Their purpose in life, I know, wake up, he's offending you about your dogs. Uh, these dogs were hunting dogs. That's what they did. They were trained to do that. They, they in, in, in rural, in the rural south, Poor people hunt rabbits with beagles. They do. 
And uh, uh, the great thing about uh, beagles is beagles are not very bright. They're not very smart, but they have great noses. And so they can smell rabbits. And, and, uh, and it's so exciting to see them smell rabbits, put their nose on the ground, throw their head up, start baying, get excited, and rustle up some rabbits for dinner. So I love these beagles. They were very dear to me. You know, you can have a relationship with a beagle that you can't have with a cow. And so um, they're just, you know, they were, they were companions as well as uh, working hunting dogs. Uh, we had a neighbor who hated my dogs. And he uh, poisoned some uh, chickens and killed one of my, one of my beagles. I didn't know it, uh, but he did. And uh, my neighbor was uh, uh, driving down our road one day and said, hey, uh, I got to tell you, you know, your, one of your beagles is down there dead. So I got a box and I walked, uh, I don't know, half a mile or so down to the other farm where he was and I picked the, my beagle up, put it in a box and I brought it back to my house. And my dad met me in the driveway, and I was just a wreck. I love this dog. <clears throat> Maybe that's why I don't have dogs now, because, you know, I got enough grief in my life without grieving a dog that dies, right? So, um, and my dad met me there, and he looked at that, and as the Lord would have it, the neighbor who poisoned my dog was driving down the road just my dad and I were standing there in the driveway looking at my dead beagle in the box. And so my neighbor, being the kind of guy that he was, rolled his window down and rolled to a stop. And uh, my dad looked at him and said, you know, uh, this is a terrible thing that you've done. I was hoping dad was going to reach in the car and pull him out and administer some justice. And my dad just looked at him and said, you know, um, you're not much of a man, so I will pray for you. Yeah. Are you offended by that? It's that hard uh, for us uh, to think about. But the fact is, if we live in a world where there is no cross, if we live in a world where God has not intervened in grace to bring about uh, the freedom from the need to mete out justice for every offense, if, 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 if we live in a world where those things are not true, then my dad should have reached in the car and punched the sky's lights out. But if the gospel's true, then I have the responsibility, you have the responsibility to love your enemies, to love the Labans in your life. This is hard. It is so challenging. It is so difficult for us to do that because the human heart outside of the grace of God grasps on all the wrong things. But thanks be to God, he has laid hold of us. 
We're going to come to the Lord's table now, and uh, one of the things that uh, is so wonderful about us as we gather at the Lord's table uh, is the opportunity we have uh, to recognize two great things. One is that we are sinners, and secondly, that God is gracious uh, and compassionate to sinners. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's confess our sins. O Lord, we desperately need you and the forgiveness you offer. You have called us to be your people and to live for your glory. But we have sinned against you. We have not believed we are your holy people. We have not trusted you as beloved children marked by your glory and purposes. We have lived impatiently as if only we mattered, and all of our passions are out of order. Mercifully forgive us all our sins for Jesus' sake, and renew us in your redeeming love. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin.